0: Welcome to China in Context, I'm Duncan Bartlett. The national dream, which has been explained to China citizens by the State Council, is very specific. By 2030, China will become a harmonious and creative society with impressive overall income levels. There's a clear aspiration to escape the so-called middle income trap, a stage of economic development at which a country's wage levels stagnate. If that happens, it would prevent China from joining the ranks of the rich nations, even if its economy is the largest in the world, overtaking America in overall size. So how far has China progressed towards achieving its dream? And what political compromises might be required in order to push the economy forward, raise everyone's income and close the wealth gap between the very rich and the very poor? Well, I'm pleased to say that we're joined on the podcast today by Scott Rezell from Stanford University. He's a renowned specialist on China, and among many other roles, he's the co-director of the Stanford Center on China's Economy and Institutions. Scott, welcome to China in Context. Thank you, Duncan. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start by looking at this issue of income. When you scroll through the Chinese social media feeds and you see images of people showing off their lives of luxury wearing cool clothes and posing in stylish locations, it's actually very easy to lose sight of the fact that China remains a developing country. Where does it stand now in terms of average income?
1: The good news is the middle class in
0: China has expanded. It's
1: 350 million people. It's larger than the middle income class in Europe and larger than America. Now, in America and Europe, if you put middle income plus high income, it's bigger than China, but China only has 1% in international terms that are high income, but it's 25% in middle income. That's big. And it's all in the past 20 years or so. However, that leaves over 1 billion people in the low income category. And even the premier of china as le- recent as you know last year turned around and said hey you know we have 600 million people that live at 1000 yen per capita per month uh, that's about 12 13 dollars a day you know so it's not in dire poverty but these guys are in what we would consider in the UK or Europe or the US or in, any other uh, high-income country as, as being poor. They aren't in poverty, but they're low-income. And, and I think that the question is going to be, how do you raise those people up? So they have not made it, because that's going to be a big challenge.
0: Well, I mentioned earlier that the anxiety within China is that income levels will stagnate. What could cause that to happen?
1: Well, uh, you know, in my book, Invisible China, basically the argument is, let's look at the countries over the past 50 or 60 years that have made it. They've gone from middle income to high income. There's a couple characteristics of the countries. They're they're the South Koreas, Ireland, Israel, the territory of Taiwan, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong. There's very few of them. Okay. There's only 15 or 20 of them that's ever done this in the past 50 years. This is a really hard thing to do. The, the second thing is, is, it's getting harder because no country has done it in the past 20 years. Put against those countries is the those in the middle income trap. So those are the countries that have been there for the last um, 60 years. And it's not that they're in like this peaceful equilibrium harmony. They grow, 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 collapse. Grow, 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 stagnate. There's 60 70 80 90 100 countries it depends how you how you define middle income that are in that there's many more countries that are in that so what i like to do is to compare what are the differences between those economies those nations that made it that gra- i call them the graduates versus those economies that are stuck in this trap and one really basic fundamental difference between the two is when they were middle income, the graduates, the South Koreas, the Taiwans, the South the Ireland's had human capital levels that were equal to the high income countries of the world, the OECD countries, the, the, the France's, Norway's, uh, Canada's and the U.S.'s, that they already had a labor force that I'm talking about their whole labor force from 18 to 65. They already had a highly educated labor force. Because the problem is, is when you go from middle income to high income, all the jobs change. The low wage, low skill jobs leave. There's still some left. You need a small share of your your population to do that. But most of the jobs become high skill, high wage, changing. You need to learn how to learn. And if your labor force doesn't have the human capital to take on those tasks, you flounder you become a mexico or a south africa or a turkey where you know that that they've been in this middle income area for the last you know uh, 50 years um, china compared to those other middle income countries the turkey is the south africa's brazil's argentina's countries that have been in middle income for for decades it has the lowest human capital in the entire middle income world and I just don't see how an economy like that can grow and thrive as it moves into high income. There's huge, huge challenges there.
0: Well, given what you say about the quest for educational attainment, I can understand why so many Chinese people want to study at international universities, including Stanford, of course. And I can also see why this has become a political issue too. So the vice premier, Liu Hu, wrote an article in People's Daily recently, And he mentioned some of the things you've just been talking about, Scott, about the very few number of countries which have leapt over the middle income trap, citing South Korea and Singapore and Asia as being important ones. But he went on to say that in order to become an advanced economy, China has to shift its growth model from a strategy driven by inputs to an approach driven by technological innovation. I'm wondering what he means by this idea of driven by inputs. Could you explain the jargon to us, please?
1: When a country is poor, like China was 40 years ago, you have everybody living in the rural areas. You have a very, very poor capital base. And what happens is you can grow by taking these inputs like rural labor and moving them from a farm where the individual produced 20 bags of grain a year. And then you put him into an automobile factory where he's part of a process that produces, you know, uh, 15,000 automobiles a year, same person, huge output growth. Okay. And that mobilizing those inputs. And then how about bringing in capital, the the foreign direct investment from Southeast Asia, from East Asia, from, from the U S and Europe, you know, came into China. It was, Capital that hadn't been there, they, they came in and built the factories and it stimulated this growth and it grew and it grew and it grew and its capital base is very high now, right? So even though China has the highest level of foreign direct investment in the world last year, everybody else was affected by COVID, that contributed almost zero to its growth because a lot of investment over a gigantic capital base is zero. They aren't going to grow like that think about the US or Australia or the UK, we've grown for the past 50 years at one to two to three percent a year. How we grew is adopting new technologies and then having our capital markets reallocate assets across industries. Productivity rises through new technology. That's what China is going to have to grow on in the future. The question is, do they have the capital markets to allocate capital across their industries? And do they have the ability to create the new technologies or borrow it? And I think that's the, the real, real challenge that, that China has on the supply side. The question is also is that once they do that, what are the 600 million workers that can't work with that technology going to do? So there's two balances, but it's a big challenge.
0: Sure. And I think there's a big political issue at stake here, too, isn't there? And it relates to the role of the state. Can you guide us through how you think China can tap the innovative potential of its private sector and at the same time hold on to this idea of running a centralized economy?
1: I've always said, haven't we had a a 70-year experiment with centralized planning and uh, it didn't go very well, right? And thank goodness when that experiment failed, we had Gorbachev in charge, right? Who who peacefully dismantled it. Is there a role for the state in running economies? Of course there is, right? I mean, that markets aren't perfect, but I think China is moving in a direction. uh, Whatever they're doing, the state is now way overstepping its bounds. They're taking on decisions that markets should be making. I don't think planners can make those decisions rationally and shut down the industries that are not performing and put more resources into the industries that are that are performing well. That's what markets do, right? China is crushing those markets. China property sector, the education sector, the high-tech sector, where some of the most innovative, successful entrepreneurs in China have, have come out of, are being attacked by the government. They're they're being suppressed and they've either pushed them away or these companies have taken very low profiles and they don't want to expand anymore. So the government thinks that they're going to take over and run this. I think that's a really dangerous, dangerous strategy.
0: Well, I hope that we'll be able to come back and talk about that topic in more detail soon, Scott, because um, I think that whole issue about the government's intervention in the technology sector is, is a huge subject that I don't really want to get into now because I'm fascinated by this issue about um, the middle income trap. But some of the commentators here on China at SOAS say that China can't get over that gap unless the Chinese Communist Party is prepared to sacrifice some of its political control. It's a balancing act, obviously. What's your take on it? Well, it, I just talked
1: about that. They need to sacrifice political control Let the markets do more. They also need to get involved, but in different sectors than what they're in now. China's going very, very fast, but it's one of the most unequal growth patterns in the world. I mean, their genie ratio of inequality is among the highest in the world. It hasn't been a problem in the past because everybody was growing. Um, I've got a colleague at Harvard named Marty White, he's professor emeritus, and he would track inequality in China over the last 30 years. And he'd go to everybody in this distribution, but especially to the poor, and he'd say, do you guys know that it's really unequal in China? And everybody would say, yeah, yeah, we know it's really unequal in China. And then he'd say, does that bother you? And to the person that he talked to says, I'm so much better off than I was, 10 years ago, and I'm so much better off than my parents were at this time of their life, and I think I'm going to be better off 10 years from now than I am now, and that's kept China together. That's the China dream, right? However, what we see now is as the economy moves up, the the nature of the jobs change, is the human capital of the whole bottom sect of of this labor force, they're all rural, or most of them are, are, you know, rural, is they see wages stagnating, they see wages falling, they they start to worry about having a job in the future. You know, manufacturing jobs are now falling in China, construction jobs have topped out and the only jobs left are in this labor intensive, informal service sector, right? Uh, Li Keqiang, the premier of China, called it the farmers' market economy, where everybody brings their peaches to the farmer markets and sell them. Or it's the I call it the informal gig economy, right? Where you know you ride your bike around delivering DoorDash with Chinese characteristics, but you don't belong to a unit. You aren't really protected by labor laws. You don't have access to social services. And once that starts building up, and if the economy slows anymore, what? are those 100, 200 million uneducated rural people going to do? I mean, they're going to sit around and and just go with it. If if they see their future getting worse and worse, some of them are going to suck it up and just do as well as they can, but others are going to start taking it out on society. China is the creator of triad economies, of, of gangs, of, of organized crime. You can easily see that coming back. So I think the state, go back to your question, I think what the state needs to do is start reallocating resources from high-speed rails to every county and going to the moon to human capital, human capital, human capital, from early childhood development to public schooling to health, and then adult training programs with lots of subsidies to subsidize the lives of them as they're being retrained. This takes the state. The the market's not going to do that. So... They need to get out of some things and they need to get into others.
0: Scott, thank you. We've covered a lot of ground there in a short space of time. And I think you've really reminded us of how diverse China's economy is with different regions and different sectors developing at very different speeds. That was Scott Rosell from Stanford University in California. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London. And there are details of our courses and events on our webpages, soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.